Hello, and welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are a faith-filled, family-focused church that's in Lakeville, Minnesota. In a moment, you'll be able to hear a sermon from one of our pastors. We hope that you enjoy and grow closer to God through these messages. And now, for a sermon from our seniors pastor, Dan Olson. Good morning. Hey, if you didn't know, I'm, I'm not the guy that just spoke. I'm not Derek. And I know that you saw him come up and take offering. Then you said, oh, man, he's not going to preach, is he? No, he's not. But uh, next week, he'll be back in the pulpit. I have a word, though, that I think God gave me for us today, a very appropriate, timely word. Holy heat wave. I love that title. If you're uh, my age or something like my age, you know that this is not just a Batman reference. Everything was holy something back then. But we need this heat wave of the Holy Spirit going through our lives, changing who we are. And there's something very wrong in so many people's lives. And we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to deliver that to us. I wanted to, um, with this being July 4th weekend, I wanted to tie it in to the July 4th celebration, Independence Day celebration. And so I can, I can do that, I think, fairly easily as we look at our passage this morning in a moment's time. But we know it as the American Revolutionary War. It began on April 19th. 1775, a little conflict that the colonists had with, with Great Britain there at Lexington and Concord. And that really began the, the, the war between us and them. And then it ended in Yorkstown on September 3rd, 1783, almost eight years later. But it was also known as the War of Independence. We celebrate this week, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We celebrate July 4th, but probably July 2nd is the better day, almost, because that's the day that the Lee Resolution was introduced, proclaiming why we needed independence from Great Britain. But then it was ratified and signed by all the colonies on July 4th, and that's what we know today. I'm going to be sharing with you a passage of Scripture out of Romans chapter 7. And here we look at Paul's declaration of independence from uh, independence from the power of Satan and how he used the law to control the lives and mess up <laughs> a lot of lives. So we're going to look at that this morning a message entitled, The War Within. And I will just warn you up front that you have a, a note sheet with the three points on it. I don't get to that until at least the second half of my message. So don't panic. Those parts will go very quickly, but the first part is all introduction before we get to those. In her book, Johnny, some of you remember that book very well and you read it from really 20, 30 years ago. 
Johnny Erickson Tata described the events that led to her paralysis, and that came when she was simply 15 years of age, and it talks about her life after that as well. As the result of a diving accident, she was permanently paralyzed from the neck down. She remembers lying unclothed on a hospital gurney covered only by this thin sheet. Well, the sheet fell. No one was around to pick it up and put it back on her. It left her exposed, but she was powerless to reach for it and pull it up to recover herself. Her mind was powerless to make her hands and arms move. Paul feels somewhat the same way when he put down his thoughts that we have recorded here in Romans 7. I invite you to stand as I read this word and we pray for this message this morning. From Romans chapter 7 verse 21 to 25, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subjected to death? But thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Father, take these words, reveal them to us, what what really is the heart behind them, what it is you're trying to tell us. We want to go out of here this morning stronger than when we came in. We want to be filled more with the Holy Spirit and Him empowering us to live the life of righteousness that you would have us to live. So bless these words, bless the hearer, bless our hearts as we receive now Your word spoken to us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. We've all been there. We've faced the temptations of life. The desire to do something that you knew it was wrong. You're trying to tell yourself this is wrong, don't do it. But you find yourself doing it anyway. Historian Shelby Foote tells of a soldier who was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh during the Civil War. His commanding officer told him to go to the rear and to uh, seek help for his wound, a time of rest. He was ordered then to go to the rear. The fighting was fierce. Within a few minutes, he returned to his commanding officer and he said, Captain, give me a gun. This fight ain't got any rear. And we can find that in our lives, that there's just no way to get out of some of these things. It's always going to be there coming against us. There's no escaping the temptation to do something wrong. It's going to come to each one of us. So here in Romans 7, Paul shares with us some incredible insights to his personal struggles. And some of us, are quick to justify our own actions, and we will say something like, yeah, you see, Paul can't do it either. And if Paul can't do it, 
makes me feel a little bit better, you know? We've watched within the last 30 plus years these mega church pastors that have fallen. Fallen in recent years due oftentimes to moral failure. And I could read the list of those names and you would recognize many of them. And somehow we feel justified when the stronger spiritual examples fail too. But that doesn't make it right. It grieves our heart to see those names, to read of those names. But it grieves God so much more than it does us. The Bible, by the way, is a very honest book. It shows us the good. It shows us the bad. It shows us the ugly. Last month, we probably, you probably saw this story play out over the news. In a Utah community just a, really a suburb almost of, of Salt Lake City, the good book has become the bad book. In that school district, there were some books that had been banned because of too much sexual content and sensitive material, so they banned those books, and somebody who is very anti-Christianity said, well, if those books have to go, then certainly the Bible has to go as well. And so they introduced this thought to the school board. There was a committee that was formed, and they looked at it, and they found that the Bible did indeed have many references to sexual content, passages that spoke of incest and rape, overtly violent, vulgar behavior. So the Bible had been banned in those elementary and middle schools. Did just read last week that there was enough pressure put on them that they changed that, and now the Bible is allowed back in those schools. And so for that, we're very grateful. But it just it lets us know a little bit of the reality of the Word of God. The Bible does talk about David and Bathsheba, and the adultery that took place there, and the following the, then the murder of Bathsheba's husband. It talks about David's children, Amnon and Tamar, how they are stepsister and brother of each other, but how Amnon raped his sister, uh, stepsister Tamar. It talks about Samson and Delilah, and we remember how that whole story played out. Those stories are reality. They happened to real people. They are not fictitious. They are not made up. And they are included in the Word of God to warn the reader of the consequences of breaking God's commands. So the Word of God isn't going to pretend. It's going to lay it out and say, this is what it is. This is reality but what are we going to do with that? And let that be a warning to us of how we should live our lives. So the Bible is real. The Bible is honest. It doesn't try to hide things and pretend that they didn't happen. And in the end, it will show us how righteousness will always win out over evil. We can identify with the human figures that we find there. And one of those is a very frustrated Paul that we read about here in Romans chapter 7. 
In Romans 7, we have the picture, very frustrated Paul. A far contrast from the Paul of Romans just two chapters earlier, 5 and 6. He said, he wrote in, in Romans 5, 2, we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. But then a few chapters later, he says in chapter 7, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body of death? So what happened? What is Paul referring to here when he writes those words? Well, what Paul gives us in Romans chapter 7 is a description. And it's a description of the ultimate futility of life lived in the external conformity to the law. This is the one who kind of desires to follow Christ. They know who Christ is in the head, but they don't know who he is in the heart. It's the one that I wrote down, this is the one that will miss heaven by 13 inches. Because they know, but they don't know. They know Christ up here. Satan knows Christ, who he is. But he doesn't have a relationship with him. He doesn't have the personal relationship to know him in that strong, intimate way. Paul is confessing that he had great confidence in the flesh. So he writes in Philippians 3, verse 4 to 6. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He said, guys, take a look at my life. I am everything that you would expect a good follower of Christ to be. As far as a Jew, I was number one in all of these areas of the best tribe of Benjamin, persecuting, upholding the name of God against those who would abuse that name of God. We could all do it. We could look back at our own lives and say, that's pretty impressive, you know, who we are, the family that we were born into, what we accomplished with our lives. So I took just a few moments and wrote down some of my highlights. A baby boomer, born in the best year of 1956. Just, I don't think it gets any better than that time for our country and who we are. I was born into a family of preachers. All of my siblings were preachers or heavily, heavily involved in their church and in the leadership of it. My mother's family, they were Kringles. All my great-grandparents, both Olsen and Kringle, were born in Norway and came over here as children and established their families here. The family that my mom was born into, the Kringles, the very first Pentecostal church in Wisconsin began in their home. They were speaking in tongues and experiencing the joys of Pentecost in the year 1900, well before Azusa Street, well before the Assemblies of God 
was formed. I have these in my office and I keep them just to remind me of my foundation, my heritage. This says Nettie Kringle, belongs to my mom's mom. It's all in Norwegian, I can't understand a word of it. But this is her songbook. They would take their songbook with them and home and then bring it back. This belonged to my great aunt, Anna. As far as we know, she's the first one that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is her Bible. It's about 130, 140 years old. And it's, again, all in Norwegian. But these are the people that that family, that name, that relationship with Christ was built upon them. My dad's family were the Olsons. And those were five siblings, my dad being one of the five. All of them went into ministry or they married my, my great aunt Esther married a minister. They were all heavily involved in ministry. Pama and I have been married since 1976, 47 years together. Our ministry years have been since I graduated from Bible school in 1978 at North Central. And that is 45 years then worth of ministry. We have two children. Our son, Derek, will be joining us later on this afternoon and brings uh, his wife and family with him. They have two children. My son is a uh, sheriff's deputy over in Washburn County, Wisconsin. His wife is a nurse. Very proud of them. And for the ministry that they have, not behind the pulpit, but a ministry on everyday life scale level, inserting their belief in Christ and hope that they have into the people that they work with. Our daughter, Dana, married, uh, so my son's name is Derek. Our daughter married another Derek, and they became pastors at Celebration Church in Lakeville, Minnesota, and we have the privilege of working with them on a weekly, daily basis. In 1974, I was the winner, the uh, winner of the fine arts, uh, teen talent, they called it back then, it became fine arts. But uh, I was selected number one male vocalist, female vocalist, not that I'm a female, but it, they hit them both together. And uh, I was the number one vocalist for 1974 for the whole country, and I, I still have that. I probably shouldn't do it, it feels a little bit bad sometimes to put that up there, but I keep it in my office just to remind me <laughs> that I want that. It was kind of fun. I was assistant youth director for the state of Wisconsin, WNMD, assistant youth director for 15 years. I have five grandchildren. All of them love God dearly. We have two grand dogs. Um, one, Mo, belongs to Pastor Derek and Dana and their family. That dog is going to heaven. I have no doubt about that. The one that's coming to visit this afternoon, still to be determined which direction he goes. Uh, he's got a lot of growing up to do. But uh, probably the number one thing that would get me into heaven, if we could go by a list like this, would be 100% Norwegian. All of my great-grandparents born in Norway. Some of you are laughing right now, but that's it's reality. 100% Norwegian. Paul says all of those things are good, Dan, but they don't mean anything. When you compare it 
to what Christ did for you on the cross. All of that, he says, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage. Don't turn to any of that and trust those things to get you into a relationship with God. And he's telling the Jewish people that he's writing to the same thing. Don't depend on your relationship of, to God through Abraham. It has to be through Jesus Christ that you will find the answer that you are looking for. Paul knew the law inside and out. Acts chapter 22 says that he was a student taught by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the Billy Graham of the day. Um, Paul attended then the, the Yale, the Harvard of their Jewish studies. Gamaliel writes about his student Paul. He said he was a fine student, probably the best I've ever had. My only problem with him was he was not satisfied because I could not keep enough books in front of him because he wanted to read so much. And there simply weren't enough books to put in front of him to satisfy him. But Paul says all of that, all of that is rubbish. Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus caused him to see his former life as a life under the law, a life of bondage. The law expresses our sinfulness. It tells us how we should live, yet it does nothing to give us the power to live that way. It simply exposes it, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. This is bondage. This is frustration. And Paul expresses that frustration here in this passage of Romans 7. The law was given primarily to increase man's awareness of sin. You want to know what sin is? Boom, here it is. And the law tells us that. Romans 7, 7, Paul said, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In Amos chapter 7, verse 7 through 8. Let me pull that up. Such a good, fun passage. Amos 7, verse 7 and 8. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. The history of Israel was right. It was perfect. It was built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. This is a plumb line. This will show what is... I thought I had it fixed. You put this... You put this on your wall. You put this on your wall that you are trying to build straight and true, especially for those who are doing working with brick. And they will have the straightness this way and then this way, and it'll be built in a correct way. So God is saying to Amos, here's a plumb line. I want to show you how far off you have gotten as a nation and as a Jewish people. No longer are you straight. No longer are you the way that you are supposed to be built. And I will put Christ in the midst of you, and he will be that perfect plumb line to show you where you have faltered. The law of God, then, was a plumb line designed to show all the people that they are crooked, that they are sinful. It was never intended to make us straight or righteous, and indeed, it never could do that. 
This law, the law of God, simply shows us what sin looks like and how it expresses itself. Too often, too often, a law makes us want to break it. A week ago, Pam and I had been down, my wife, had, we had been down in Branson, Missouri with some family. And we were driving back. And when you were on the road, you see this all the time and you experience some of it yourself. When the speed limit says 25, you want to go 30. If it says 55, you want to go 60. If it says 70, you want to go 75. I can't tell you how many times I was passed by on that interstate, people going 80, 85 miles an hour. It's human nature for man to want to break the rules. The flagship hotel in Houston, Texas is built right next to the water. Large plate glass windows adorn the dining room, which is on the lowest floor. However, those windows kept getting broken, kept getting broken by guests who were fishing from the balcony above the restaurant. They would put heavy sinkers on their line, used so that they could reach the water. But the lines were often too short, and so those lines with that heavy sinker would come back, and they would fall against the glass windows, breaking them. Finally, the management, in a wise move, removed the no fishing from balcony signs in each room, and the glass was finally safe because there was no rule to want to break it. The law always bears fruit in disobedience. Always has, always will. So a large part of what Paul is doing then in chapter 7 is looking back at his former life without Christ. He says it was pure frustration. He knew what he should do, but he was powerless to do so. There was then the war within him that he was fighting. Paul wanted to do right, but he couldn't do it on a consistent basis. Not until he found Christ living within him did he have the power that he needed. This passage in Romans 7, we could call a demonstration of inadequacies. Rest easy, I'm finally at my three points. You can take notes from here on with these three points. A demonstration of inadequacy. So Romans 7, number one, it demonstrates the inadequacy of human knowledge. Life would be easy if all we had to do was know what was right. Knowledge by itself, though, however, never made a man good. I know how to golf, but I am not a good golfer. I've never come close to being a scratch golfer, ever, 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 never will. In high school, I took art and I took home ec because I wanted to eat my homework. I just thought that was fun. I took art, but that doesn't mean that I could paint anything. I have a nephew here. He paints wonderfully. I don't even come close to that level of Seth. But I can paint a room, but I can't paint an art piece, a painting. I can fry spam. I can make macaroni and cheese. I can do ham and eggs, bacon. I can do those kind of things. But there's no way that I would be considered 
a good cook like many of you are. To just educate about social problems is not enough. Simply providing more education, if we do it on racial issues or poverty or homelessness or climate change or abortion or sexual issues or mass shootings, to just provide education on those things is not enough because a change of character is needed. And that's where this society fails. We've taken out the character issue. We've taken out the whole issue of God coming in and instilling new values in mankind so that they won't do these things. So we take God out of the equation and there's no opportunity for a change of character. Knowledge is not enough. There's a difference between morality and Christianity. Morality is the knowledge of a code. Christianity is the knowledge of the one who wrote the code, Jesus Christ. That's where it makes a difference for those of us who are following Christ. The world has been full of good men, good moral people who don't or didn't know Christ. I, could, I think you could make a case where you could put a Gandhi into a situation like that. You could call him a moral man, but his Hindu beliefs kept him from knowing Christ. Only when we know Christ are we able to do what we know what we should do and be given the power to do it of the wheel. And I told myself, I remember telling myself, you should move your foot because if they go forward, you're in trouble. And I didn't do it. But sure enough, the car lurched forward. Suddenly that car is sitting on top of my foot. To have the resolution to do it was not enough. I needed to have the action. So for all of you, what was your New Year's resolution this year? How long did it last? Did it make it till the end of week one? Did it make it till February? What was it like? So many will have that resolution to do good, to make a change, but time goes on and we totally forget what we have thought we should do. In human nature, there's a great weakness of the will. For every one of us, in human nature, there's a great weakness of the will. Jesus told Peter that he would disown him three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. We all know how that ended up, right? It's a weakness of the will. Aleda Hussein was 78 years old. She lived in Rotterdam, Netherlands, and she had been smoking for 50 years. For 50 years, she'd been trying to give up that habit, but she had not been successful. Finally, she gave up cigarettes, cigars, and pipes. What was the secret? His name was Leo Jensen. He was 79, and he proposed, proposed marriage to her, but he refused to go ahead with the marriage until she would give up smoking. If you give up smoking, I'll marry you. If you don't give up smoking, the marriage is off. 
So as he later said, willpower never was enough to get me off the tobacco habit. Love did it. And Paul echoes those thoughts here in Romans chapter 7. Number three, it demonstrates the inadequacy of recognition. It demonstrates the inadequacy of recognition. Paul knew what was wrong, but he couldn't make it right. Joni knew, Johnny knew what was wrong and that the sheet had fallen off her, but she was powerless to pick it up and pull it back on and to cover herself once again. A doctor can quite appropriately make a diagnosis of a disease, but that doesn't mean he can describe a cure for it. Sometimes he can. Oftentimes they can't. It's just beyond them. Jesus is the only one who can do that consistently for us in our lives. Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Incredible. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'll highlight those last words in just a moment time. We know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the next verse, God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, there is no condemnation for you. And that is the freedom that we rejoice. That is the independence that we rejoice all about this morning. That's the breaking of bondage that we all need to know. The cadet prayer is repeated every Sunday out in West Point. And here's what that prayer says, part of it. Make us to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, and never to be content with a half-truth when the whole truth can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all that is noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice, and knows no fear when truth and right are in jeopardy. It's a great prayer. Don't follow the path of least resistance. That's Satan's way, and it usually will end in eternal death. We've already read what Paul had to say about confidence in the flesh. Now, in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, he shares with, his, with us his concluding thoughts about that matter. Here's what he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
As Christians, we die, we have died to sin, supposedly have died to sin. We are freed from its power over us. Romans chapter 6, a few verses earlier, talks about dying to sin, being buried with him, being resurrected to new life. I've been in the hospital room when patients have died. The monitor is suddenly flatlined. There's no breathing. There's no, there's no movement. In Romans 7, Paul has been looking back to his life before salvation. It's a life where one is married to the law. They're not married to Jesus. And no matter how bad we want to resist sin, we can't do it because sin is not dead in us. Sin is still alive in us. Several years ago, I was in Caracas, Venezuela. We were bringing kids down for a couple weeks of ministry down there, one of our AIM trips. And I was fascinated by something that made its way into our room called a cockroach. And these things were huge. I mean, gigantic things. And I so wanted to take one home, but I didn't want it to be alive, so I tried to kill it. I couldn't do it. I tried to put it in water so it couldn't breathe, didn't work. I stuck it probably 10 to 12 times with a pin, didn't work. I could not get that thing to die. I looked it up. I looked it up this week. These amazing creatures called cockroaches. Here's a fun, couple of fun facts. They can become thin as a piece of paper so they can get under any doorway or any little opening that you have. They can be frozen for weeks. Then you thaw them out and they come back to life. They can live for a week without a head. For everyone you see, there are probably a thousand that you don't see hidden in the walls somewhere. They have to die. Your sin has to die. We must die to sin. Human willpower will never be able to accomplish that. Only Jesus can help us to do that. I put down a few thoughts, some practice for you before you leave here this morning. How do we die to sin? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, I think are a very big key to that happening. The author writes, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. If you are running this race and your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you don't have time to be looking around at all the things that can come in and cause temptation in your life. Fix your eyes on Christ. You will kill something off by not feeding it. And that's a big problem for many of us. We continue to feed that sin. Every one of us has an Achilles heel, that weakness in our life. And Satan knows what that Achilles heel is for you. And he will custom make his temptations designed just for you. What tempts you will not tempt the person next to you because we're all different. Some people have a lust 
for money. That will bring them into sin. Some people have a lust for fame. Many have a lust for sexual pleasure. There's a lust for food. There's a lust for power and recognition. Don't feed it. Get rid of it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30, Jesus talks about this very thing. And what he says there is, if your eye offends you, causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your hand does the same thing, cut it off. Better to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. Does he mean that we're to literally gouge out our eyes to cut off our hand? I don't think so. What he is saying is there must be ultimate sacrifice that is made in your life. If we were to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands or our feet, there'd be a lot of pirates walking around. <laughs> We'd have one eye that's left and we, there'd be a, that, that false leg that we're on. No, he's saying, compared to going to hell, get rid of that thing right now. Get it out of your life. Whatever that thing may be. For some of you, it's being as drastic as getting rid of the internet. Get rid of social media. Cut that thing out of your life. Because in itself, it probably is not all that bad, but it can lead to a lot of paths that are very, very, very damaging to us. There are things in our lives right now that we never had to face growing up, but our kids are exposed to them all the time and just a couple clicks they can be in the deepest of pornography and such. Get rid of that stuff. Better to get rid of it and not to have that be the thing that draws you down in life. Maybe television needs to be given up. Maybe Fox News or MSNBC need to be given up for a while because it just continues to make you more and more angry and you need to shut that thing out of your life for a while. Maybe it's the magazines that you are reading. Maybe... It's the friends that you are keeping. And you need to shut some of that off for a while to get back on a more righteous path. We have not died to sin. Romans chapter 6, when Paul talks about being buried in Christ with baptism, he's talking about dying to sin. Some of you have not died to sin. You got baptized 20, 30, 40 years ago or more. But you have not died to sin. It's grown back. And it's probably as strong now as it ever has been. And it's frustrating to you. Why? Because you do not, have, do not have the love of Christ in you to take care of that thing. We're going to do baptism here in a couple of weeks. I don't think it's wrong that if it's been so long and you forgot the significance of what baptism was to you, to simply get baptized again. Make a new commitment to Christ saying, I want to die again to you. I haven't done that for a while, and I need to do that again. Romans 6, verse 5 and 7. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Here's a couple thoughts I wrote down concerning this passage that we just read. First one is this, because we died with him, we can also live with him. With our death to sin, we are free to begin our life in Christ. 
We either die with Christ or we die with Adam. You make the choice. What's it going to be? We are not always sinless, but sin no longer has control over us. Because we die to sin, we are constantly being freed from sin. As a follower of Christ, there's no condemnation for you. You will still, you know, you're going to live your life for Christ, but there are times when you're going to stumble, you're going to fall in that, in that weak area, that time. Satan may be victorious for a moment, but there's not any condemnation, so you're not going to hell because of that. Christ is right there by the power of the Holy Spirit to pick you up and say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin. No more. And we have that strength that's available to us, and we need to claim that for ourselves this morning. Romans 8, 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law is a pattern of how things happen. It is a rule. The law of gravity tells us that if you have a, slubby, a heavy slab of concrete, that that concrete will remain where it is placed. So side, sidewalks will stay where they are poured and placed. But we've all seen a sidewalk that is heaved up and it's unbalanced and it's picked up in one corner. Maybe because it goes back to a small acorn that fell between the cracks or beside that. And then it grew into an oak tree. And those roots came by and uprooted that, uh, that thing that was, had so much weight in it. That's what's meant by the statement, Romans 8, 2. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That first law looks like it's so permanent, so in place. But the law of the Spirit comes in and it can remove it and it can up, uh, undo it and change that law within your life. A man was in a field and suddenly noticed a large fire that was rushing towards him, much like the Canadian wildfires right now. He knew that he couldn't outrun it, to escape the fire, something so wise, he simply started a smaller fire. And even when it was still small, it had probably burned up two or three, four feet, and he just simply stepped over that smaller fire line. And then when the large fire came, it went all around him because there was nothing more there to consume. The law is like a brush fire. You can't escape it. But if you stand in the burnt over place, it can't hurt you. That place is found at the cross. Christ's death has disarmed it. Thanks be to God. Through God, through our Jesus Christ, our Lord. Before we go to communion, a couple days ago, a couple weeks ago, June 9th, June 10th, was celebrated. It's a, it's a new federal holiday. I didn't even know what it was until just a few years ago. But it's a, hell, uh, a federal holiday that commemorates the freeing of slaves through the Emancipation Proclamation. On June 19, 1865, two months after the war was over, soldiers reached Galveston, Texas, and told those slaves that were there, you didn't know it, but you are free. 
You've been declared free, so go in freedom. There are so many people today, even believers, maybe some right here, you've been set free, but you don't understand that. You don't know the reality of what Christ did for you on the cross. You have been set free. Take that for yourself. We too are free from the law of sin and death through Jesus Christ if we will accept it. We hope that you learned something from this message and are able to apply it to your life. If you gave your life to Jesus for the first time or for the tenth time, please reach out to us on Facebook or email us at info at celebrationchurch.net. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week.